0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley and you're listening to the Lead from the Hard podcast. One of the recurring themes of our series is the idea that society largely believes that all human cognition occurs in our brains and ignores the emerging science which proves neural cells, meaning brain cells, are distributed throughout our bodies. When we're faced with a big problem or a challenge, we're urged to use our heads to figure out a solution, even though feelings that emanate from our hearts and other parts of our bodies can provide additional and valuable insight and lead us to achieving far more informed decisions. As tapping into intelligence that transcends the brain proves to be a profoundly important skill in maneuvering and succeeding in life and leadership, today's episode is intended to be a clinic we're going to introduce you to methods of enhancing your own personal intelligence in ways you may never have known existed. Our guest today is acclaimed science writer, Annie Murphy Paul, whose new book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, was just named by Amazon as one of the best books of 2021 so far. We're all used to hearing that the brain operates just like a computer, and we've all been told that the brain is like a muscle that gets stronger with rigorous use. But in recent years, IQ scores have stopped rising or have even dropped in several major countries. The implication is that the brain in our heads may already be operating at or near optimal capacity. But what Annie's research now proves is that the mind doesn't stop at the standard demarcations of skin and skull. And the truth is, humanity has actually achieved its most impressive feats by thinking outside of the brain, by extending the brain's power, with resources borrowed from the body, from other people, and from the material world. Studies even show that top performers don't really do it all in their heads. They achieve their superior results by integrating internal and external resources. What you're about to hear is not a dry science class. Instead, it's a discussion with a marvelous conversationalist who explains how you can use sensations in your body to make sounder decisions, how moving your body in certain ways helps you think more intelligently, and why our brains and bodies are designed to perform optimally when they're outdoors. When we intentionally cultivate the capacity to think outside the brain, a new world of possibility opens up and we gain access to reserves of intuition and memory and attention and motivation that simply aren't available to the naked brain. Thinking outside the brain is not a skill we've intentionally been taught at school or at work, but it's one that we can all acquire. And you're about to learn how in ways that I hope will deeply inspire you. And with that, Let me welcome you to the podcast, Annie Murphy-Paul. I'm
1: glad to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. Well, I've been looking forward to this. And right before I got started here, I just went on Amazon just to see how your book was doing. And it says... Best book of the year so far list for 2021 on Amazon, which is quite an extraordinary accomplishment. And maybe want to start off by asking you, what do you think is the interest? Like, this is, this is an interesting conversation we're about to have, and the topic that you've written about is really kind of like a new wave in terms of an understanding of how human beings work. What do you think is the interest? Like, what's, what's getting people excited to read your book?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for those kind words, Mark. I think that, honestly, the pandemic has something to do with it. We were, for 14 or 16 months, however long it's been since everything kind of shut down, we've been sort of brains in front of screens, you know, not uh, leaving our houses that often, not moving around as much as we might usually have and not interacting with people in person And I think we've noticed that we don't think as well without those, what you might call mental extensions of our bodies and our spaces and our relationships with other people. So I think people were kind of ready to hear a message about how thinking doesn't just happen inside the brain. It's kind of spread around these extra neural resources, these resources that are outside the brain. And all of those are the raw materials that get brought into the thinking process. So... You know, it's hard to know why a message resonates at a particular time, but I think the limits of what you might call the brain bound model, the idea that the brain is the sole locus of thinking, I think the the limits of that model are becoming apparent and people were looking for an alternative.
0: I did not see that coming in terms of your answer. That's really fascinating. So one thing I would love for you to do as we continue with the conversation, one of the hottest topics in business right now is whether or not it's effective for people to work from home, particularly 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And you've just introduced this idea that we're limited by being alone and by limiting mm-hmm. ourselves to being outside with nature and being with other people. And so to the extent that you can add you know, insight around that, That might be the bonus for this conversation. So, Mm -hmm. Antonio Damasio had this in his book, too, that French philosopher René Descartes famously said, I think, therefore, I am. And, you know, we've believed that for a really long time. And it's an assertion that human beings are purely rational beings, which everyone Mm -hmm. in this audience knows is not true. but. You believe that the more informed and enlightened assertion is to say, I feel, therefore I am. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I want you to start off by explaining why.
1: Sure. So I quote that uh, line that's actually from a scientist who is an expert on what's known as introception, which is the capacity to sense our internal signals. And that's kind of an introception is kind of a fancy scientific word for gut feeling, which all of us have probably experienced at one time or another this feeling that you know something, but it's not really coming from your head necessarily. It seems to be coming from your body. And so the idea is that introspection is actually a kind of repository of wisdom and knowledge and information that your body has access to and that can alert you to with sensations that arise in your body that may let you know that you're encountering a situation that's similar to one that you've encountered before and give you some guidance into how to handle that. But if we're not attuned to our bodies, if we're not sensitive to those internal signals and cues, then we miss out on that repository of knowledge and wisdom that the body gives us access to. So It's turning Descartes' idea of I think, therefore I am into I feel, therefore I am because it's really that continuous stream of internal sensations that gives us a sense of being alive and being the same person from birth until the present moment. So locating our sense of self and locating all our knowledge in the head is a mistake, really, is what that's trying to say. It's really thinking is a full body experience
0: is one way you could put it. You say that our culture insists that the brain is the sole locus of thinking and that none of us have ever mm-hmm. been explicitly taught to think outside the brain, which I completely agree with mm-hmm. you. And in business, by the way, we want the brainiest managers. We want, you know, the smartest people. Mm-hmm. And it's all sort of this intellectual orientation. And so I think, you know, we're really not shown how to employ our bodies and spaces and relationships in the service of intelligent thought. And and to use your words, which, you know, this really resonated, we're told, use your head <laughs> you know. yes. So tell us what you mean by the extended mind which is the title of your book and why we need to learn to think outside the brain.
1: Yes, yes. So the extended mind is actually that is a theory that was proposed by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers in a paper that was published in 1998. So I came across that paper much later. And when I read it, it tied together a whole bunch of research findings that I'd been encountering as a journalist that I felt were related in somehow, but I didn't have kind of the big idea that pulled them all together. And the Extended Mind did that for me by through its argument that thinking doesn't just happen inside the head. It doesn't just happen in the brain. It happens, it's sort of a process of assembly of all these rich materials that are available to us in the world the movements and sensations and gestures of our bodies and our contact with the natural world and with the built environment, which we can arrange to extend our thinking, and then also the minds of other people. And that thinking happens by skillfully orchestrating all those resources, not by just working our brains ever harder and harder, as if the brain is like a computer that we just have to stuff full of information or like a muscle, which is the other kind of dominant metaphor for the brain. And I introduced this metaphor in the book that the brain is more like a magpie, like a bird that plucks, you know, bits of this and that from its environment and weaves them into its nest. That's what the brain does. It plucks information and uh, resources from its environment and weaves them into the thought process which means that the quality of the raw materials you have to think with really affects how well you can think and all of this is a model of thinking that's very different from say just sitting still and getting your work done and pushing the brain until the task is done you know that's a very brain-bound model of thinking and it's one that I think is very limiting.
0: Well, most of us think that the brain operates like a computer. And as you just Mm -hmm. said, and that thinking is a computer program that runs in our brains. You wrote this in the book. And I'm like, yes, this is what people think. And we also think, Mm -hmm. that you know, all these things about getting older, and it's like, you got to work your brain and make it stronger. And by making it stronger, like a muscle, it's going to perform better. And you don't believe either one of those is true. So how did Mm -hmm. we come to believe them as truth? Mm -hmm. And why aren't, they truth.
1: Yeah, well, the brain is this great mystery to us and people have always reached for metaphors to try to understand the brain. And if you trace the history, it's so interesting. People have always compared the brain to whatever the most advanced technology of the time was, you know, whether that was a hydraulic pump or or a switchboard, or then in starting in the mid twentieth century, when computers were invented, the whole field of cognitive science is built around the idea that the brain is like a computer. And You know, that was a full metaphor. It stimulated many programs of research and gave us a lot of insight. But as I say, it's very limiting because we are actually a lot more like animals than we are like machines. You know, the brain... Is a biological organ that evolved in a very specific environment and it evolved to do very specific things, which are quite different from what we expect it to do today. You know, we expect the brain to manipulate abstract symbols and deal with non intuitive ideas like scientific theories that the brain has a really hard time grasping. And so The mismatch between what our culture needs the brain to do and what the biological brain is really equipped to do explains a lot of the issues that we have with attention and motivation and persistence. So I think we'd be better off if we understood the nature of the brain, its limits, and then the way to transcend those limits, which is really to draw in and skillfully use these outside the brain resources so that the brain can kind of overachieve so that it can do more than it would be able to do on its own.
0: Okay. So let's discuss what you called interoception. And by the way, in reading your book, I didn't make the connection. You Mm -hmm. said early on that interoception is really gut feeling. And Mm -hmm. so let me start there. Is it more than the gut? In other words, is gut just the reference that we use? Help me understand what Mm -hmm. interoception Mm -hmm. is, because we're going to dig into this
1: Yeah, so interoception refers to all the sensations that arise from within the body. So no, it's certainly not just the gut. And in fact, if anything, it's mostly in the scientific field, it's mostly associated with the heart because detecting the heartbeat has become the kind of standard test of interocept sensitivity. So in this test that is given to people, the heartbeat detection test that's given to people in order to see how in tune they are with their bodies. People are asked to identify when their heart is beating. And it's interesting when you mention this to people, some people will say, Oh, yeah, I can do that. And other people will say, What are you talking about? I can't, I don't know when my heart is beating. So it's a stand in, really, the heartbeat detection test. It's a stand in for introceptive sensitivity generally. But no, the sensations that we refer to as being a part of introception arise all over the body and then are sent to this structure in the brain called the insula, where they are sort of integrated with other kinds of information collected by the brain. Introspection gives us a sense of how we're doing in the moment. It's kind of a gauge of where we are and where our energy supply is and how ready we are to tackle challenges
0: can you give me an example of how this plays out i'm going to get into where are the sensors and how can we get better at doing this but it might be helpful at this point for you to give an illustration like you're in this kind of a situation and your mind you want to go to your mind to get the answer but here's how you use your body could you Mm -hmm. give us an example (laughs) like that
1: Sure. So say that you've been asked to give a speech in front of an audience, and that's a pretty nerve wracking experience for most of us. And so leading up to the speech, you may find that you're feeling certain changes in your body. You're feeling that you have butterflies in your stomach and you can feel that your heart is beating and you, you sense that your palms are sweaty and you may feel a tightness in your chest. And all of these are introceptive signals. That you then have a choice about how to interpret them. You could think to yourself, God, I'm so nervous. I hope this goes well. You know, I'm really scared I'm going to mess up. Or you could tell yourself, calm down, you know, stop feeling so nervous. It's just a stupid speech or something, you know, which is another way of trying to sort of push your internal bodily signals away. Or you could pay attention to those signals in a non-judgmental way, kind of being open to them and curious about them. And you could do one of a couple things. One thing is that you could acknowledge and remind yourself that this is your body preparing yourself for a challenge. This is your body mounting its resources to help you with a difficult task. And People who do have anxiety or kind of arousal, physiological arousal that is above the norm, but not debilitating, you know, not to the point where you, you're you not able to function well. They actually do perform better. You know, it makes you more alert. It makes you ready to go. And so another way you could emphasize that to yourself is to say, to reframe it. It's this technique is known as cognitive reappraisal because you're reappraising what these bodily signals mean. And when when you engage in cognitive reappraisal, you might say to yourself, instead of saying, I'm so nervous, I'm so scared, you might say, I'm so excited, I'm, I'm raring to go, you know, because those bodily signals are the same, you, you would feel the same kinds of signals and cues if you were waiting in line to get on a roller coaster, you know, which is something you chose to do. And presumably, you think you're really going to enjoy, but you still have those bodily symptoms and signals. And so you can intervene in that process of creating an emotion. And as long as the physical cues are in line with the, um, you know, you can't tell yourself, I'm so relaxed, I'm so relaxed, when your body is telling you something different. But you can reappraise the symptoms and signals of anxiety and arousal and remind yourself that this is you getting worked up and excited in order to tackle a challenge. And that can really improve your performance.
0: So you're saying, obviously, You want to experience the feelings and not push them back. You want to embrace them, not push them away and, and not refute them and not dismiss them as, oh, I shouldn't be feeling these or interpret them as undermining to my future success. So I'm feeling this stress. I'm feeling these fears. Undoubtedly, I'm going to do badly. You're saying, no, make it a much more empowering reframe. But experience those feelings because they're giving you information that's helpful to you. Is that a good summary?
1: Exactly. That is, that is. And I think, you know, our culture doesn't necessarily tell us to do that. Our culture kind of, because it is so brain bound and brain centric, it tells us to push away those bodily signals and don't pay attention to them, just kind of power through with your mental machinations. And I think this is a very different and, as you say, empowering kind of message.
0: That's a fantastic example. I'm going to ask for another one Mm. because and I'm hoping that you can do this extemporaneously like you did this last one mm-hmm. so brilliantly. Mm-hmm. I know that we take in information in a lot of different ways and I know that I'm not auditory and I know I'm not visual. I'm not good with maps. I'm not good with directions. I get lost a lot. I don't hear people's words literally and so I've kind of mm-hmm. come to realize that I'm a kinesthetic person and with the mm-hmm. work that I do to focus on the heart I've learned that I actually feel into situations. Like I'm feeling what's going on more than any other way of interpreting this like even our conversation right now i'm feeling our Mm -hmm. experience and how is it going and is it going Mm -hmm. well and is my audience going to like it it's not an intellectual it's a complete Mm -hmm. Mm feel. i've got to believe that through the process of writing your book you've become really good at this so Mm -hmm. have you And are there any examples (laughs) (laughs) put you on the spot? But but I'm really looking, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty of this, I really want to give people a sense of how you use this, this intelligence Mm -hmm. that extends beyond your mind. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that's very perceptive of you, Mark. I do think that I am good at this and I do think that I've gotten better at it because of what I've learned through researching and reporting the book. And I will give you an example, which is that we've been talking about how interoception can help you understand yourself and your own state of mind and improve your own performance. But interoception is also key to understanding other people. And there's a really interesting mechanism by which that happens, which is that when two people are speaking face-to-face, and this is part of why in-person interaction is so important, we tend to subtly mimic the other person's facial expressions and posture and gestures and then we read off our own bodies what those mimicked expressions make us feel and in that way we get a sense of what the other person is feeling we're kind of literally kind of feeling their pain in a sense and interestingly people who are more attuned to their interoceptive cues are able to be more empathetic and to better understand what the other person is feeling because they have access to that in their own bodies. So I have used that in my own interactions with people in the following way, that when I'm talking to someone, I'm definitely attuned to them and looking at them and gathering from them a sense of how they are. But I'm also tuning into my own body and my own feelings. And looking to see if there are cues and signals that I can gather that are rising up from within me. The body is such a sensitive instrument, and it picks up on vibrations, in a sense, from other people. And that's another way that being attuned to our bodies can make us more accurate in understanding our world and other people. And so that's actually been very meaningful to me and very important in my own life.
0: So I have a question. Mm -hmm. Can we do any of this through Zoom?
1: (laughs) It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, and I do tell people that it can be helpful to, you know, another way that we really communicate apart from our verbal language is gesture. And so if it can help when you're on Zoom to sit far enough away so that the person that you're Zooming with can see your gestures and it's helpful to be able to see their gestures as well. And But I do think a lot of the presence that we feel when we're in person with someone is lost. So many subtle cues and shades of emotion are lost when we're we're looking at each other on a screen. So I hope this is in reference to something you said earlier. I do hope that leaders and managers will make it possible for people to gather again together in the workplace. I think that's really important when you're working together.
0: I happen to agree with you. What I don't know at this point, because I don't think we have... the only experience that we have with people working from home was during this extraordinary (laughs) pandemic. So we we don't have like a real world experience you know where people have the option of working in one place or the other but so people have asked me to declare like where are you? And Mm -hmm. because the heart needs connection and I believe the heart Mm -hmm. needs connection in order to thrive I'm not in favor of 100% remote work. I think that Mm -hmm. that harms teams. I think it harms people. We're seeing mental illness and anxiety and stresses all sorts of signals that something is not working here perfectly with working from home. On the other hand, not having a two-hour, you know, mm-hmm. two-way commute often is a great offset. So do you, and this is just your opinion, mm-hmm. and educated as it is, I'm just curious as to if you were to advocate for what percentage of the week would be with mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. not with people, where would you land?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that I can put a number on it, Mark, but I do think that, you know, I talk in the book about what it takes to create a sense of, and this is actually a term used by scientists, a sense of groupiness, Uh, you know, so when does a collection of individuals become a group? When does it have a sense of itself as groupy? And the keys for creating a sense of groupiness appear to be learning and training together. And that's, you know, at the same time in person in the same place having emotional experiences together, which, you know, tend to happen naturally when we're working together and communicating openly with each other, and also engaging in rituals together. So taking part in sort of meaningful activities together at the same time in the same place. So I don't know that there's a a prescription for how often that has to happen, but I do think for groups working together, it's really ideal to have at least some of your time be given over to engaging in those activities together and not just over Zoom.
0: That's really fantastic. So I'm really glad I asked that question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's great. So how do we get better at listening, being acutely aware of what these sensors are telling us?
1: Well, one of my favorite methods that I recommend is known as the body scan, which those of your listeners who practice mindfulness meditation may have encountered because mm-hmm. it's it's a component of mindfulness meditation practice that often starts off a meditation session. The teacher will say, let's start by taking some deep breaths and bringing our attention to our body. And maybe they'll start at the feet and sort of work their way up. The idea is that there's almost like a attentional spotlight that's moving up the body and you pay attention to each part of the body in turn with this same kind of open, non-judgmental, curious kind of attention. Just paying attention to what sensations are in, in that part of the body, what you're feeling, being open to that and encountering it in a very relaxed way. And the body scan is something that can become a part of, it doesn't have to be part of a formal meditation practice where you're sitting on a cushion. It can be a kind of check-in that you do with yourself multiple times a day because Again, we get so busy and rushed and harried in our lives, and when that happens, our awareness of the body kind of drops out. We realize that we've been running around for hours and we're hungry and we didn't even realize it, or we have to use the bathroom, or we're tired, but we were kind of pushing all those things out of our consciousness. So it really helps to remember in the middle of a busy day to just take a moment and check in with your body and see what you're feeling, and that that can become a really helpful
0: habit. So what would you say to somebody if they said, oh, that just sounds so woo-woo, you know, that just like, that's something that I'm not going to do. Because I know somebody's going to be cynical around this, you know, doing Mm -hmm. a body scan and, you know, check in, Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So explain the practicality of this so that people don't have that cynicism when they're done listening to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, uh, I don't know if I can... um Persuade anybody who's not inclined to be open to the idea, but I would say that everything we do, including intellectual activities, you know, activities involving the mind, uses up energy, and we have uh, obviously a limited supply of energy, and so interoception acts as a kind of gauge for how much energy we have, how much energy we need to budget to do whatever task we're contemplating doing. And it really is a key component of resilience to have an accurate sense of that energy level and how we're feeling and how well prepared we are to take on a challenge. So interoception is by tuning into our bodies and by being interoceptively sensitive, we actually can be much more resilient in the sense that we can prepare ourselves for a challenge, we can see our way through that challenge, and then we can recover more quickly after a challenge has ended if we are in tune with our bodies. And if we're not, we can get to a place where we're burned out or we're frustrated and we give up or we overextend ourselves, you know, and that's all because we weren't paying close enough attention to our body and its needs.
0: Awesome. Have you ever had an email from somebody And you were sort of like perplexed by the response. And then you used these tools and just sort of went in and felt and said, okay, what's this person experiencing? I found that I can do this. (laughs) This That's why I'm asking Mm -hmm. you. It's just like, you just thought, okay, this person's angry about something that doesn't have anything Mm -hmm. to do with this or Mm -hmm. what they really want is something else from me. I, you know, just sort of feelings. Have you ever Mm -hmm. done this? And does this fit into Mm -hmm. the interoception element of, you know, what you write about?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that a key element of emotional intelligence of the kind you're talking about, where you're you're not rushing to judgment and you're not reacting in the moment out of your own sense of anger or whatever it is, if you can hold that door open a bit longer and and remain open to what the other person is trying to communicate or where they're coming from, interception can certainly play a role in that. In the sense that, again, you can read off your own feelings, like, oh, I think this person is actually really feeling very anxious, or I think this person is feeling sad. You know, I mean, this is something, interestingly, that psychotherapists, you know, people who are clinicians and work with people in the mental health field are experts at because they know that when they feel a sensation of an emotion arising within their own bodies, it's often actually a reflection of what their client is communicating, but maybe not even saying in words.
0: If you can do that, then how you respond to the person is much more informed. Right. I and mean, I often mm-hmm. get people like, I don't know how you thought to respond to me like this why, mm-hmm. you know, but thank you. And, you know, and it leads to a better outcome, you know, and you're not mm-hmm. hammering the person because they displayed what really wasn't going on in the first place. So I appreciate right. the confirmation. Mm-hmm. You say that <laughs> the heart and not the head leads the way. Which, Mm -hmm, of course, mm -hmm. if I had a plug bell, I'd be ringing right now. But what do you mean by that? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that was in part a reference to a study that I write about in the book, which is a study of financial traders on a a trading floor in London, which Mm -hmm. going into the study of a bunch of successful financial traders, you might expect to find that it's the most intelligent among those traders, the ones who maybe got the best grades in school or, you know, have the highest IQs that or most successful. And what this study found was that they looked at something totally different. They looked at how well the traders did on that heartbeat detection test that we were talking about earlier. They looked at how interoceptively attuned these traders are. And their first finding was that, that these traders were much more attuned to their bodies than a control group of people, just sort of random people on the street. So there was something about their sensitivity to their internal cues that was making them successful as traders and better at their jobs. They were almost self-selecting into this job as people who were attuned to those internal cues. And then secondly, the second finding was that among the traders, those who were best able to detect when their hearts were beating, who were most interoceptively attuned and most in touch with their body signals they were the ones who made the most money and who stayed the longest in this sort of notoriously volatile profession where there was a lot of turnover. So I just thought that study was so fascinating in that we don't think to ask, well, you know, that guy who's successful at what he does, how in tune with his body is he? You know, we're much more likely to ask or to say he's so smart or he's so, you know, he's such a brain or he's such a genius, you know, but we don't think about how skilled someone might be at interpreting the sensations of their body. And I thought that study was a really nice way of showing that there's more going on than just what goes
0: on in our heads. Well, even worse, we dismiss it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's it's not as if we don't have them on equal value that's one thing but it's mostly it's like well i don't care what your feelings are you know what what's right, your rationale right. for this trade and what what are the analytics and what's the you know future projected earnings of this company and tell me why you're making this from an intellectual rational standpoint so when somebody using your description says i'm using something beyond my mind to make these decisions uh-huh. i think a lot of people in business just think like Please don't. Like we don't really that's not what we're paying you to do. So (laughs) right. right? so what do you say to that? Because this isn't just financial services or investing. This is real life, right? This is managing in any aspect of business.
1: Yeah. I sympathize with the person trying to make that case because we're not a culture that values the wisdom of the body and we're a culture that is so hyper focused on the brain, on the cerebral and the intellectual. And so you know, I guess I might try to point to the results, you know, to say like, look, you know, I found that when I'm attuned to the deeper source of knowledge and information, I do a better job and let me show you how that works or let me show you the basis for how that might be helping me succeed. Because we are a culture that demands documentation and, you know, reasons and rationales. And if that's what you're looking for, you're not going to persuade anybody. But I think that's a matter of sort of a paradigm change that we need to undertake as a society as a whole, that we need to move away from this exclusively brain bound focus. And that will probably take some time.
0: What were they doing? The guys that were being more successful, like how do you explain that? What were the behaviors or what were they doing?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so the basis of interoception being a good guide to making decisions is that as we go through life, we're encountering so much information, so much stimuli in our our daily lives, and we can't take it all in or store it all consciously. But we are able to store it on a non-conscious level and to notice patterns and regularities in our experience that can be useful when we encounter a similar situation later on. And the way we have access to that non-conscious, not stored knowledge that's drawn from our own experience is the body. That's what a gut feeling is. That's what an introceptive signal is. It's the body kind of tapping you on the shoulder or tugging you on the sleeve saying, you know, you've encountered this situation before and here's some guidance about how to handle it. And if we're not in tune with our bodies then we're not going to hear that, we're not going to feel that tug on the sleeve. And what these financial traders who were so attuned to their bodies seem to be doing is that they're really good at paying attention to what their bodies were telling them about these you know, really moment-by-moment moment fluctuations of the market, which were maybe too quick and too complicated to track on an intellectual level. But they had learned that they could rely on their body's reactions to give them that edge and to kind of nudge them towards the correct decision at that moment.
0: So what's the difference between interoception and intuition? Mm,
1: that's a good question.
0: Are they equivalent? Are they the same thing?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I mean, interoception is very specifically body-based and mm. and refers to this system whereby we have all these sensors within the body that collect information and send them up these pathways to the brain. Intuition might be a broader kind of concept that incorporates some more traditionally kind of conscious knowledge of patterns and regularities that are maybe hard to articulate or hard to put into words, but that nonetheless, we have a, a sense. That's how intuition feels to us. We have a sense that we're correct, but we can't necessarily explain why. And I think introception might be a part of that, of that intuitive
0: certainty. You write at the very end, I think your book's been written up in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and one of them mm-hmm. actually started the article with the very last sentence of your book. Mm-hmm. And so, now you know that I got to the end of the book to make that mm-hmm. point. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so, <laughs> you said that acknowledging the reality of the extended mind might lead us to embrace the extended heart. And I thought, well, I can't wait to ask her what she means by that. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was a reference to the fact that in our brain bound society, our brain centric society, we reward people or penalize them based on their outcomes without taking into account the raw materials that they have available or don't have available to produce that outcome. Like we think of intelligence, as I was saying, is this lump inside the head that's either bigger or smaller And it's fixed and it's innate and it's an individual and that's what makes us perform well or, or not. But what I'm saying is actually how well we're able to think depends so much on what resources we have available to incorporate into our thinking. And those resources are in no way equitably distributed. You know, some people have access to green space. Some people have the freedom to move their bodies. Some people have access to really informed and knowledgeable mentors and others don't. So all those things matter in terms of how well we're able to think. And so what I'm encouraging people to do with that last part of the book is to say, look, we're not all in the same place in terms of the extraneural outside the brain resources we have available. Let's remember that. When we judge people on how well they're performing and let's not assume that it's all up to them and it's not all up to their brains in terms of how well they can think.
0: So as a manager, what you just said makes me think I'm not the manager. I'm suggesting that as a manager, mm-hmm. what could we do
1: to mm-hmm.
0: improve people's ability to be equivalently supported in this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I think leaders and managers have a really important role to play, but they don't always necessarily recognize this role. And that role is as situation creators. We're always thinking in context. We're always thinking in a situation of one kind or another. And some situations are more congenial for think intelligent thinking than, than others are. And so, rather than trying to manage people, you know, and trying to get people to do certain things that you want them to do, it may be more effective to think in terms of what are the conditions that I'm creating for them to work in? You know, am I creating an office space where people feel like they belong, where people can focus and concentrate without being distracted? Am I creating an office space where people can have fruitful conversations with their colleagues? Am I creating an office space where people have access to natural light and are able to go outside when they need to or move their bodies when they want to solve a problem or come up with a new idea? It gives managers and leaders a whole new kind of toolkit of things they can use to help improve their people's performance.
0: It's fantastic. That's really a great insight. You know, I'm impressed just in listening to you. I don't want to compliment how smart you are. That would be your malpractice (laughs) for the whole topic here. But that comes Mm -hmm, through. You know, one of the things in this podcast, I'm reading... Every guest book, and so through the accumulation of Mm -hmm. all the different ones, you know, I'm exposed to a lot of different thinking, and you're crossing into a lot of uncommon insight and understanding. So, Mm -hmm. thank you, which makes you great at talking about just about anything, which is kind of what I wanted Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. You talk about moving bodies, which is something that I was also really looking forward to doing with you. When COVID hit and the gyms closed, I thought, well, I used to be that guy in the gym at five o'clock in the morning, and it's bright lights Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know bump 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 music and but that Mm -hmm. was that was the alternative you know stay in bed Mm -hmm. or go to that and so now Mm -hmm. I ever since COVID have been walking on the beach for a little over an hour in the dark by myself Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. can't tell you and you know that I've spent the whole summer writing my second edition of my book and in the process Mm -hmm. I can't just tell you like how many times just putting my foot on the ground and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like what I want to write about that day or a change of thought or, you know, an insight that didn't come to me anywhere else is happening when I'm moving. And I yes. think we completely underestimate this. So I'm going to turn it back over to you and have you explain why this is so valuable.
1: Yeah, yeah. And isn't it funny that a lot of teachers and managers have the idea that in order to get your work done, you have to sit there at your desk until it's finished, you right. know, when really it might be, it probably is much more effective to to step out and take a walk like you described. Well, you know, back to this idea of the brain that it's not a computer, it's very context dependent, where someone is really affects how they think, how they're moving their body really affects how they think. And because the brain did not evolve to deal with abstract concepts but rather with experiences that we can have with our bodies. We tend to take those abstract concepts and put them into metaphorical kind of embodied metaphors. We use use embodied metaphors to talk about abstract concepts. So that shows up in our language all the time. You know, we say that we're reaching for a goal or we're running behind schedule. You know, we just automatically kind of put things in these embodied terms because that's what we know how to deal with. Yeah. And so it works in the other direction, too, that when we, move our bodies in a certain way, we're priming our brains to think in a certain way. And if you think about the metaphors that we use to describe creativity, we talk about I'm on a roll or my thoughts are flowing, you know, and the opposite is true when we're we're not doing so well, we might I'm say stuck. I'm in a rut or hmm. I'm stuck. Yeah, exactly. Which are metaphors of static, you know, kind of non-movement. So when we start moving, when we start walking, walking is itself this kind of loose metaphor for dynamic, flowing, moving thought. Psychologist's explanation for why we so often tend to get good ideas when we're moving as opposed to when we're just sitting there trying to, you know, racking our brains, trying to think of a good idea.
0: So again, how do I apply this as a manager besides having like walking meetings would be one powerful way of doing it? Let's go for a walk and have our discussion. But if people are working remotely, what can we should we tell people? Hey, get out of the house and go for a walk because it'll it'll change your dynamic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think for those of us who are working at home for now or maybe having some kind of hybrid schedule in the future where you're working at home part of the time and in the office part of the time. That gives you a lot of freedom to just head out your front door and take a walk when you feel like you're stuck and you need to get some brain work done. You know, don't just sit there go for a walk. And you get a kind of double benefit if you go outside, because we haven't talked so much about this yet. But the function of being outside that is so helpful is that nature absorbs our attention in a way that is diverting and pleasant and kind of absorbs our attention, but it doesn't draw down our attentional resources the way really focusing on our, our work does. So when we go outside, when we're moving, and we're in nature, we kind of get the double benefits of movement and also of this attention restoring process that goes on when we're in nature. And we're just kind of letting our attention wander from tree to sky to grass, you know, that is a, a mode that is really conducive to restoring our attention so that we can return to our desk and feel ready to tackle that project again.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you talk about natural spaces, also like creating a natural space. Like, mm-hmm. describe your work environment. Have you done anything based on? <laughs> sorry, put you on the spot. You know, well, I got I, no, no. I, I know.
1: have, I have. I'm at my desk right now, and it's it's in front of this big window, and I have a big tree outside my window that I just sort of I do sort of end up staring at a lot because when I'm trying to think of something, and the the breeze is often rustling the the leaves, you know, and. I do try to incorporate natural materials into my office. I have a lot of wood in here and a lot of sort of like woven materials because there is evidence that kind of biophilic, that means like that's a reference to the fact that humans evolved in a natural setting and we still prefer natural materials and natural motifs. And so the more you can bring the outdoors in through windows, through natural light, through natural materials, the more congenial a space you're going to create for thinking.
0: And so is it automatic? In other words, you said that because that's we basically through our species growth, you know, we're outdoors mm-hmm. most of the time and now we're indoors. So the more you can bring what we know naturally to our environment, the better off we're going to be.
1: Yeah. And again, so much of my book is like providing a scientific rationale for what we already sense. I think when we go into a fluorescent lit sort of windowless space with like endless beige cubicles, you know, we've all either been in a space like that or been unlucky enough to work in a space like that. We know it's depressing and it's it's hardly conducive to sort of lively thinking. And that's because it lacks the stimulation of the outdoors with all the sort of gentle movement and visual sensations that we experience when we're outside. But it also can be very harsh and jarring in the sense that there's loud noises or, you know, I'm thinking of like urban environments that are sort of also opposite to nature. And so nature is almost like perfectly because we, we evolved in nature and we adapted ourselves to nature. Nature is like the perfect balm for our really harried modern lives. And, you know, unfortunately, we spend more than 90% of our time Inside buildings and cars, so you know we're not really getting out there as much as we could or we should.
0: You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking our audience has probably shaken their heads a million times in this conversation, saying, "I've had that experience. I've had that experience." Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, the sad thing is, is that we need books like yours that have science and data to prove what mm-hmm. we already know intuitively to be mm-hmm. true, right? It's right, it's right. sort of a sad thing, but you know, what your book does is confirms what people have already known, right? You know, you feel better right. outdoors nature and looking at beauty and it makes you work better and, and going for walks. It alters your psychology and your emotional well-being. It all this seems so obvious and yet we don't really think of it in terms of applying it to our work setting. Your work has to be come on, get at it. You know, right, you right. don't need a window. You don't need you don't need no natural right. light. You know? That
1: again is the sort of computer brain is computer metaphor which is like a computer works just as well indoors, outdoors, you know, whether it's next to a sun window, whether it's with other computers, <laughs> you know, all those things that really matter to people don't matter to computers. And that's a really that's one reason why the brain as computer metaphor is so misleading.
0: Wow something else that you said in the book is that you know a lot of times we attribute like one person to these great breakthroughs and I don't even remember yeah. if you used it but like Thomas Edison had like a whole organization of people who were doing experiments all day long that was their job to help him right. figure out so but we give Edison the credit for all the different things the light bulb and electricity and all those kinds of things but in, in fact right. you know he was stealing from other people in a benign way right he was using mm-hmm. the work of other people to accelerate his own and I think Thomas Tony Robbins calls that modeling. But talk about that as a tool for people to get better at anything.
1: Yeah, so there's this taboo, I think, in our culture against imitation. And we view it as sort of this lazy cop-out or even plagiarism. But the fact is that systems of education and apprenticeship have, for centuries, were modeled on imitation, on emulating the works of the masters, the people who really knew what they were doing before ever trying to introduce your own twist or your own creative take on something. And so I think we need to get back to that, to the value of imitation. And we place so much value in our culture on innovation and being the first or the newest but really before you can do that in a skillful way you have to have mastered all the things that came before and so imitation is a really good way to get inside the process of creation and understand it from the inside before you ever have to introduce your own twist on a process or on an idea and so i would like to see a sort of renaissance of imitation and emulation and modeling as a way of learning and mastering a skill
0: how did you learn that <laughs> <laughs> you know, I
1: I've been a writer for 25 years and I I very consciously modeled my own prose on the writers that I admired and I read them and read them until I could almost tell you how their sentences were constructed and I I think that's true of a lot of people who are artists, people who are creators, they study really carefully the people they admire. And I think that can be an excellent approach for people in any industry to figure out who it is that you admire, whose work would you like to be creating and figure out as closely as you can how they did it. And that may involve imitation until you master it and then you can add your own twist to it.
0: I love that you apply what you've learned. You know, mm-hmm. so, sort of, right? I mean, everything, everything that you write about in your book, you're actually applying into your life, yeah. including, you know, modeling other writers to the point that you can then use your own voice. That's pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. Along these lines, Northwestern professor Brian Uzi, I hope that's, I pronounced his name correctly, mm-hmm. has said that almost everything that human beings do today in terms of generation of value is no longer done by an individual. It's done by teams, So what's the leadership takeaway from that insight?
1: Yeah, well, what Uzi says there is undeniable. And yet, I think a lot of people approach working in groups with a lot of dread, you know, with Mm -hmm. a lot of apprehension, because we've all been involved in, in group work and teamwork that was frustrating or difficult, or we just think to ourselves, God, I could just do this so much faster and better myself, you know, so how, how do we resolve that paradox wherein, you know, we need to work together, we need the contributions of lots of people to solve our complex problems and tackle the big jobs we have to do, but how can we make it so that working together is effective? And the fact is that we're not taught to do that. We have this very individualistic model of thinking, and my own theory about why group work is often so unsatisfying and so frustrating is that we bring this model of individual thinking in into the group setting. And then we never become a group mind. We're really just a collection of individual minds. And we don't extract each person's contribution and combine them in new ways, which is the sort of genius of group thinking when it's working well. So I think we need to develop and learn and teach others much more structured ways of communicating in groups. Because right now, our method is to kind of throw a bunch of people together in a conference room and say you know work this out and what happens often is that there's one or a few people who dominate and lots of other people hardly speak at all and then you're not benefiting from their individual wisdom and knowledge and experience and then there can also be processes like groupthink where people start to agree with each other without considering all the other possible options so I think just as we learn and are trained to think in this individual way, we need to start thinking about how do we create structured patterns of interaction that allow us to think together as a group. And that's really going to be the future of work, I think.
0: Do you have any one piece of advice around that? Like, Mm. start here?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I really love the idea. This is another sort of wonky scientific term, but it's called transactive memory, which is which just means that no one person can know everything. But if you have a group of people, each person can have an area of specialization and thereby have access to or, you know, sort of multiply their access to all different kinds of information. But the key to that is that everyone in the group has to have a pretty accurate and updated notion of what the other people in their group know. And that requires communication and, again, a kind of structured way of, letting everybody in the group know, like, oh, this person over here is an expert in this, this person over here can really handle that, and then develop kind of efficient ways of routing tasks and information to those people who are sort of experts within the group in certain areas. So transactive memory, I think, is a really useful concept, again, of what we sort of knew that, like, a group can have its varied experts, but we need to be a lot more conscious and intentional about cultivating it.
0: Glad I asked. Annie, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation we ask our guests a series of quick answer questions with the intention of just learning a little bit more about them personally, their interests, influences, life philosophy, stuff like that. And we call it the heartbeat round. Again, I'll ring the plug bell, but now it's your turn. So when you hear each question, please give us your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat. You ready to play? I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) Your favorite outdoor spaces?
1: I really love the ocean and uh, watching the waves. That's to me a perfect example of this kind of rhythmic, gentle movement with repetition that is so good at restoring our attention. I think watching the waves really does that for me.
0: One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life? But
1: people love to be asked for help. You know, I think I was afraid to ask for help, and I thought I had to do everything by myself. And now I realize that people actually enjoy helping They enjoy having their expertise recognized and appreciated. And I'm much more likely to ask for help now than I was before. And it actually often creates a wonderful connection that you wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: A book you wish everyone in the world would read.
1: (laughs) A book called Supersizing the Mind by philosopher Andy Clark. It's maybe a little bit um, dense for the average reader, but I think it's a wonderful introduction to the idea of the extended mind.
0: The quality you admire most in other people?
1: Openness. I really love a kind of open-mindedness that is receptive and ready to engage with ideas and not think that someone who doesn't think they know everything already.
0: The quality you least admire in other people?
1: Arrogance. I think arrogance really cuts you off from other people and it cuts you off from learning about yourself and about the world because you think you've got it all
0: figured out already. Prediction about the future you're pretty sure is going to come true.
1: I think that now that we've learned that so many things can be done remotely, I think we will be doing a lot more things remotely, but I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I think we have to remember the importance of in-person interaction and how much is lost when we, when we do things online.
0: Your best way of tapping into your extended mind.
1: I'm a big believer in what's known as cognitive offloading, which is getting the mental contents out of your head and spread out into space, whether that's on a whiteboard or on a bunch of post-it notes. You know, we try to do too much in our heads, I think, and we actually would be much better off downloading our thoughts onto physical space and sort of moving them around almost as if they were physical objects or almost as if we were navigating through a three-dimensional
0: landscape. Wow. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I'm
1: working on making my ideas really accessible, really not simplifying so much, but making them really clear because I love detail. I love nuance and I can really get into the weeds. So it's always a challenge for me to make things as simple as they can be, as they should be, but no simpler.
0: What's your favorite word? (laughs)
1: Engaged. I love the word engaged because it captures the way that I want to meet the world in an engaged way that's alert and energized and curious. And I think engagement is really the key to a happy work life and a happy life in general.
0: Your synonym for the word heart. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I think my synonym for the word heart might be deep. I think of a heart conversation, a heart to heart conversation is a deep conversation, one that's not superficial, one that goes to the heart of things, you know. And I think something that touches the heart is something that touches you deeply. So I think deep might be my synonym.
0: Something you specifically learned in the process of writing your book you didn't know before. Mm.
1: I learned that our ideas about the brain and about thinking are flawed in many ways that I hadn't realized before because I had accepted them. They're all around us and they're embedded in our institutions, our schools, our workplaces, and I had never really thought to challenge them until I read the critique that is implicit in the extended mind, the theory of the extended mind.
0: Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life.
1: I think everyone should try rereading a book that was important to them at an earlier age. I've always been a big reader, and I tend to read a book and then move on to the next. I think you can learn a lot about yourself and about how much you've changed when you return to a book and read it with those new eyes.
0: The trait that you think destroys the most leadership careers. Mm. I think a lot of
1: leaders suffer from a kind of over certainty, they think they know how things are going to turn out, they think they know exactly what needs to be done. And that way, they sort of blind themselves to opportunities and also to dangers. So I would say intellectual humility, a kind of acknowledgement that we don't know as much as we think we know, I think is a really important quality in a leader.
0: These are really thoughtful answers. So this was very worthwhile. So thank you for going through these with me. This was really good. This was great. Yeah, it's so good. Thank you. Oh, it's Before you go, I always do this. And I just kind of mm-hmm. want to turn the floor over to you and really just ask if there's something that we didn't cover within your book that you think has direct relevance to anyone listening to this who's a leader, mm-hmm. a manager, CEO, what have mm-hmm. you, that would help them just immediately be more focused and tapping into their extended mind?
1: Mm. Well, we didn't really talk about gesture, which I find really fascinating. And and our cameras were off during this interview, but if they were on, you would have seen me talking with my hands because I am very much a a gesture. But what was so fascinating to me about the literature, the scientific research on gesture, is that Often our most cutting edge ideas, our newest and most original ideas, they show up in the movements of our hands first before we're really able to put words to an idea. You know, when you're in that state where you're like an an idea is emerging, but you can't quite capture it in words yet. It shows up in the gestures and movements of your hands, and then we tend to read off that kind of self-generated information of our hands, and that informs our evolving verbal account of our ideas, and it kind of pulls those words out from us, and we're able to finally articulate what it is that we're trying to say. So. I would encourage leaders and managers to move their own hands around a lot because that encourages other people around you to gesture more. And also you can explicitly encourage the people you work with, you know, say, try moving your hands when you say that. You know, I say this to my kids that when they're trying to explain something or describe something, it can really help to get their hands involved. So I love the idea of gesture as this sort of second channel of communication that we're really not taking as much advantage of as we could, but we can learn to use gesture as a kind of complement to our spoken language.
0: Thank you this is such an unusual conversation. It's an unusual book. It's groundbreaking in so many ways. And you do a really wonderful job of articulating all the information that you've discovered. So on behalf of my audience, Annie, thank you so very much. It's been just a delight. I honestly can't wait to listen to this again Uh to enrich myself more, even though I've read your book and have like 12 pages of notes in front of me. And this was Uh really great. So thank you so very much.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mark. It's been really fun talking to you. Have a great night. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Before I say goodbye, I want to thank my wonderful team, including Carrie Finnessy, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, and my producer, Eric Oz. And as you begin planning team meetings and events for the rest of the year and into 2022, please consider me as a speaker If the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it's that leading with greater heart has become essential in both our physical and remote workplaces. And I would love to come teach your teams how to evolve their skills to match up to the critical moment in the history of business that we now find ourselves in. I thank you very much for listening. I hope that you'll always continue to introduce us to your friends and your colleagues. And finally, before I go, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.